Hello, we're here at the Sage Perspectives on the Future Conference with Brandon Coons, Partner and Portfolio Specialist at Research Affiliates. And he just presented to our conference on presentation titled, The Past is Not Prologue. And so, Brandon, can you, you know, first just introduce yourself, uh, talk a little bit about Research Affiliates, and, you know, just we've been used to the kind of good returns on U.S. assets, really financial assets over the last, you know, century plus. You know, talk a little bit about can we be expecting this in the future? Yeah, so uh, just quickly on me, I'm from California. I've been working with research affiliates for about six years on their multi-asset strategies. We partner with a couple of affiliates on a tactical asset allocation vehicle and then another alt-risk premia fund. And our kind of business model is just uh, conducting research and then affiliating with asset managers to distribute the solutions based upon our research. So in order for us to really add value, we have to provide you know, compelling research and a compelling investment process that other asset managers want to uh, exploit. As it relates to just kind of high returns experienced in the past and what the future looks like, uh, we have found through our work that uh, yield is a primary driver of returns for most asset classes. And yields across all asset classes over the last uh, 10 years in particular has fallen pretty significantly to the point where we now forecast a U.S.-centric 60-40 portfolio to deliver very modest returns. Um, If you look at, for example, U.S. stocks, our nominal return forecasts uh, can be computed with a building blocks approach where we look at different components of the drivers of return. And the starting yield is about 1.8% for U.S. stocks. That's the dividend yield. Uh, Our expectations for real earnings growth is something to the tune of one3 that gets you to 3.1% real. You add about 2.1 for inflation, and that gets you to something like 5.2% nominal returns, and that's assuming that today's valuations remain elevated. If you get any mean reversion in valuations, then that starts to eat away at that 5.2% nominal number. And based upon our assumption that valuations revert just halfway back to long-term averages, then that can represent about a 3% return uh, headwind to the returns of U.S. equities. You put that all together, you get nominal returns of around 2%-ish and real returns of very close to zero. And it doesn't look any better for bonds. So um, regardless of the way that you slice it, a U.S. 60-40 portfolio is is looking like its central tendency returns are going to be in the sub-1 range. So you mentioned um, valuation reversion. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by valuation and your method on kind of thinking about valuation, just starting with equity markets. Yeah, so we look at valuation using a metric that we believe is the only predictive metric of returns in the valuation land. There's a couple derivations thereof, but it's the Schiller PE ratio, also known as the CAPE ratio. And basically what we're doing is looking at today's price divided by 10-year real earnings. Uh, the average of the 10-year real earnings over the last decade. And by doing that, um, you can actually create a longer-term forecast, not something that's good for tactical one-year time horizons, but something that's certainly uh, accurate over 10 and longer periods of time as it relates to what return prospects are likely coming out of really all equity markets. It's not just the U.S. And so if you look at that valuation work today, the U.S., Schiller P.E. ratio is close to 30 times earnings. In other words, an investor today has to pay about $30 for every dollar of 
real smooth earnings coming from the equity market. And on average, it's been much lower than that historically. Now, we don't assume that we will revert from today's high Schiller P.E. ratio of 30 all the way back to that long-term average. But we do assume with our valuation work that we will revert at least partially towards that longer-term average. And if we assume that it just goes halfway back to that long-term average, then that is indicative of that, what I was mentioning, 3% return headwind to the returns of U.S. equities. And you can apply this analysis to any country or any region. And interestingly, outside of the U.S., you don't get those same effects. In emerging markets, for example, they're trading at Schiller P ratios of close to 13 times earnings. And our assumed equilibrium is a little bit higher than that, something closer to 14 times earnings. So there's room for multiple expansion in emerging markets. In developed markets, there's not necessarily room for multiple expansion or contraction. It's just that the dividend yields and the earnings growth added up together with the potential for a currency appreciation lead to our assigning kind of real returns for non-U.S. developed exposure of something like 45 or 5.5% per annum for the next decade on a real basis. Interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned emerging and developed markets. Um, I know that demographics and, and your analysis and research in that area play a huge role into future expected return. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, basically, our demographic work speaks to the potential for real earnings growth prospects across different regions. And in areas where you have relatively young populations, it's usually the case that younger populations are learning quicker. And if they're learning quicker, then they're contributing more to productivity growth uh, and thereby real GDP growth within that particular economy. And that can flow through to not just the real earnings growth coming out of the equity market, but also to to uh, cash rates, which um, is a way to capture what real interest rates ought to be in a particular country, which tend to be related with long-term GDP growth. So if you have countries that have younger populations, that have higher productivity growth, and those populations are growing, then those countries ultimately have higher cash rates and the potential for higher growth in dividends and earnings per share. And as a result, um, we assign higher uh, return prospects to emerging market countries that are expected to have higher equilibrium cash rates moving forward relative to their developed market counterparts. Interesting. You know, what about, you know, factor investing? You know, does it hold the answers? If not, or if so, what should we be looking at in fa- terms of factors? Well, we've written a couple of papers um, that kind of try to disentangle which factors are robust. Um, there's been a lot of different uh, articles out there that say that there are hundreds and hundreds of different factors. And in the era of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can have computers find a t-stat of anything on any spurious relationship, and that could give you the sense that there's more robust factors than there really are. Um, for us, I think uh, the most important thing is identifying which factors are robust, and that requires putting each factor through a pretty stringent test. From our standpoint, um, it's best to recognize which factors are robust and then identify which factors are increasingly cheap relative to their average valuations. And those factors that are increasingly cheap are the ones that you most likely will want to leg into relative to others that are increasingly expensive. 
There's a momentum consideration that we can add to that as well, where we look at whether or not a factor has had recent momentum in its returns. And if you use a combination of both factor valuations and factor momentum applied to robust factors overall, then that could be a decent uh, portfolio relative to kind of a passive capitalization-weighted approach to equity investing. Okay, so Brandon, last question. You know, we can expect lower returns uh, in the coming years, um, especially long-term, uh, for asset classes. Uh, we're getting older as a population um, on a global basis. You know, what, what do investors do in, these, in this coming environment, and how do they uh, maximize the probability of earning, let's say, a 5% real return? This comes down to increasing your tolerance for what we call maverick risk. Most people are so afraid to deviate from the allocations of their peers that they're unwilling to uh, succeed or fail unconventionally. And in order to, to succeed in the coming environment, we see uh, a growing need to allocate to unconventional asset classes, diversifiers, asset classes that tend to be satellite positions in most investors' portfolios. Those are the asset classes that are poised for better performance. We also have noticed that most investor portfolios are under-allocated to alternative forms of risk premium. Think carry investing globally or value investing globally, but more in a long-short format. Or trend investing globally, where you buy trending markets and sell markets that are selling off. If you do that in a robust portfolio, then you're gaining access to alternative forms of premia that are uncorrelated to traditional asset class exposure. Uh, and if appropriately leveraged and managed, they can be poised to deliver returns of, say, cash plus 7 to 9% over a full market cycle, which is certainly more attractive than the you know, less than 1% real returns that a 60-40 portfolio is offering today. All right. Thank you for your time today, Brandon. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.